the more authoritarian you are, the more likely you are to vote national, and the more likely you are to eat more meat. Hello, and welcome to Why Don't We Just, a podcast about the complex answers to simple questions. My name is Dale Vavasor, and this is episode 3 of Why Don't We Just Ask People to Change. Whether it's trying to get someone to stop being a dick, or asking them to help us move towards a better future, we're exploring the hidden complexities that make behaviour change difficult. Last episode, we heard from Gina Grimshaw about biases and ways to navigate them. Today, we are talking to... Mark Wilson, I'm a professor of psychology at Victoria University of Wellington. And what sort of research do you tend to do? Ah, oh, I hate it when people ask that question. Um, so I'm a social psychologist by training, um, or I, if I was legally allowed to call myself anything, I would call myself that. So um, most of my interests historically have been in social psychology, so the relationship between how the social world impacts on the way we think and how the way that we think impacts on our social world and also the way we think about our social world. But more recently I've become particularly interested in... Uh, adolescent mental health and of course everything is ultimately social in nature so it's kind of a a subset of that previous interest. As you may have heard in the introduction episode this doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of Wilson's research interests. Rather than rehash that list I'll simply read out the title of the most recent talk he gave within the university. That is, if I had to have my leg amputated I'd take it home and cook it or why people eat or don't eat meat. One of the things Wilson spoke of in that talk is the relationship between eating meat and particular types of personality. It is the latter that we're interested in today, looking at particular personality types and assessing how they affect efforts for behavioural change. But before we get to that, Mark Wilson is a veteran lecturer who introduces first-year students year after year to social psychology and the ways social pressure can influence people. Since I had the opportunity to sit down and talk with him, First, let's hear about how people, as a general group, can be pushed around by others. So I I thoroughly enjoy having the opportunity to introduce these topics. These are what I think of as golden age social psychology. So these are things that, by and large, have their roots in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, inch into the 1970s, in terms of the sort of thing that social psychologists were researching. And like a lot of psychology, they follow this kind of this pattern over time. Someone becomes interested in something, it gets done to death, and then people move on. So a lot of this stuff actually came about as a consequence of people's reactions to the events of the Second World War, so the Holocaust, the um, obliteration of literally millions of people based on their differences from others. So a lot of classic golden age social psychology is intended to understand why people would commit atrocity. So we have issues of conformity. Why would people go along with messages about doing ill to others? Why would people do as they are told if it involves doing ill to others, and that's the distinction between conformity and obedience. Um, And a lot of the social psychology research, which I tend to introduce at the introductory levels, is a reaction to a book called The Authoritarian Personality. So this is work published in 1950 by um, Theodore Dorno and others, which basically laid the the blame for the, the Holocaust at the feet of a particular type of personality, the authoritarian personality that they argued um, characterised 
German people in the lead up to the Second World War. So that's an individual difference. So it's, some people are more authoritarian than others. Um, like many types of traits, the idea is they should be normally distributed. The authoritarian personality fell out of favour soon after, but a resurgence in the concept is what we will address in the second half of this podcast. For now, these golden age psychology studies done in response to the concept are always, I've found, some of the most striking stories of experiments you can come across. People by and large like to consider themselves to be credible, reasonable, rational, that we do things for reasons that, that stand up and, 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 and make sense. The conformity research is, is really interesting because it shows that um, people will often go along with what's happening around them, even if they don't necessarily agree with it. So the classic study here is the, the, the Ash Lines experiment where you get a bunch of people into the room, um, only one of them is a real participant, you go around the room saying, okay, who thinks X? And the majority say something. The real participant in the room is statistically very likely to go along with what the majority have said, even if they know that it's not the case. In this example, Solomon Ash got a small group of people who all seemed to be legitimate participants. They were shown a line, just a picture of a straight black line. This picture was replaced with three lines of varying lengths. Around the room, each person was asked which line was the same length as the first one. Every person, except for the last one, was what is called a confederate, an actor who was actually working with the researcher, and they all gave the correct answer. Repeat this a few times, get everyone comfortable with each other, and then suddenly, one round of answers, the confederates start giving the wrong answer. By the time we reach the last person, the only person not clued in on what is happening, they're quite likely to also give the same incorrect answer. We know that when people do conform, they often do for one of two reasons, either because they want to be liked. So we worry that if we say something different from the majority, that they're going to dislike us and there may be social consequences. Or alternatively, we kid ourselves that actually maybe there's something wrong with the way that we see the world. Maybe the majority is actually right. So this this research then was built upon and leads on to this, this notion of obedience. Because in the conformity experiments, no one's telling you to go along with the majority. You are effectively buying into the expectation that that's the case. Obedience, on the other hand, is different because it's where we're explicitly asked to do something. And the kind of research that has become infamous in um, introductory psychology courses around the world is Stanley Milgram's research in which he invited people to administer electric shocks to a confederate um, who was progressively getting answers to questions wrong. And this research showed that around about two-thirds of um, upstanding, average American men would follow the instructions of a researcher to administer electric shocks well beyond the point where the person on the other end of these electric shocks has stopped responding. This is particularly important because it goes up against that idea that Adorno et al. had made. Those who wrote about the authoritarian personality. Which was that we do bad things because we're bad people. If you can show that a group of American men drawn from a variety of walks of life, two-thirds of the time will do as they are told, even if it looks like something repugnant, suggests that it's not a pathology of personality and rather something that's more to do with the situation. Of course, it's, it is more complicated than that. 
Um, the orthodox textbooks talk about the power of the situation in creating that obedience effect. But we also know from Milgram's own research, at least in one of his studies, that it was the people who scored highest on a measure of authoritarian personality who were most likely to administer those electric shocks. So that's a classic research that I think of when I think of this golden age social psychology stuff. Yeah, I definitely remember in my own first year when you were covering this that you discuss how at the time all the psychologists were asked, hey, what do you think is going mm-hmm. to happen? And they were like, oh, nobody will follow along. And personally, I was a bit disappointed because <laughs> I'd done psychology in high school, mm-hmm. so I knew where you were going with the class, but I could tell you had really set up the class mm-hmm. so that the twist would be a big surprise to everyone. Mm-hmm. So all the students would go, what? Why would people mm-hmm. shock someone lethally like that? Mm-hmm. Or even today, people, when presented with that sort of outline, like to think that by and large, well, they, they often say, I wouldn't go along with it. And by and large, they tend to think that other people wouldn't, or at least not a majority of people would. Um, at the same time, we also know that bad stuff does happen in the world, right? So we know that there's probably some kind of kernel of truth in it. But it's easier for us to pathologize to attribute this to flaws in people's personalities than it is to the situation. Because actually, if we believe it's the situation that creates it, then actually it might be that we either experience those kinds of things, or alternatively, we might perpetrate them. So in some, people are a lot more susceptible to social pressure than they're willing to admit. This can be useful information when, say, designing a campaign. For example, there's a paper published by Robert Caldini in 2003 summarising his research on how to phrase signage. What he found across several studies is that this social pressure of what is, quote, normal, extends to implied normality from how signs are worded. For example, signs that tell you to please put your rubbish in the bin because it's a big problem that lots of people fail at are not actually very effective because they're telling people that normal behaviour is the opposite of what the sign is trying to achieve. But unless you're placing signs up in your house telling your flatmates that everyone washes their dishes and they should too, it's hard to place that kind of communal pressure when you're operating by yourself. Now, in lieu of a cool segue, let's move forward in time to current understandings of the value of trying to socially influence people. What I would say is that while I teach topics like conformity, obedience, bystander intervention, we call these sort of, um, these are all about interpersonal persuasion, these are about how people come to do the things they do. Even though they look like separate boxes, they're actually not. And these days, what we tend to adopt, probably for the last two decades, is the idea that a lot of people's social and political behaviour is what we call motivated. It's motivated social cognition. The idea that we believe the things that we do because they serve psychological functions. So the answer to, to the question, how would we go about looking at these things, is it depends on where you are in the world. So, for example, in North America, the experiment reigns. Now... Uh, this is a this is a classical way to go about trying to disentangle cause and effect, but it does have the limitation that laboratories are not like real worlds. Real worlds are complicated, so the position that a lot of people in New Zealand take um, is survey-based research. So I do a lot of research where I ask people to tell me a little bit about how they think about things, and what I can say from that, for example, is that the 
in terms of things like predicting anthropogenic climate change change beliefs, the people who are most likely to believe in anthropogenic climate change are not the smartest people necessarily. Education is actually a relatively poor predictor of climate change beliefs. In fact, your political orientation is a much stronger predictor. In fact, it's the best predictor identified by local international research as to why, whether people are sceptical about climate change. If it's not about education, either how many years of formal education you've had or how much science education you've had, then actually this raises a really important question for us. Should we be investing a lot of effort in trying to tell people that 97% of climate scientists think that anthropogenic climate change is real? Should we be investing a lot of time in trying to upskill people in terms of science? I think these are um, good things to do, but I don't think we should assume that they're going to impact on the way that people think about some of these really important topical social issues, because they're much more rooted in people's worldviews, the way they think about the world subjectively, than the way than in terms of what they know about the world objectively. When you ask someone to change their climate change belief, for example, you're not just tugging at that one attitude, you're actually tugging at the other parts of their belief system that go along with it. And that's really tough. Belief systems have a lot of inertia. You have to pull really hard in order to change something. So what you're saying is that if something in general really goes against someone's core belief system, it's really hard to get them to go yeah. along with that. So in that case, like if we're talking about climate change, are there ways perhaps reframe mm. the issue to make it more palatable to their worldview mm. and that they go along with it? A simple answer is, I don't know. But I have some ideas about how we might start. There's some fantastic work that initially came out of Australia, out of work at the University of Queensland, that involved saying to Australians, in the context of climate change, not do you believe in climate change or not, but what sort of an Australia would you like to live in in 50 years? And then asking people, to what extent would recycling hurt us getting to that? To what extent would trying to promote reusable packaging prevent us from getting to that point? To what extent would cutting down on our consumption generally prevent us from getting to this Australia that you would like to live in? And by and large, people tended to think that actually these kinds of things that we think of environmentally friendly behaviours actually make it more likely for us to get the Australia that we'd like to live in in 50 years' time, even if we don't believe that the climate is changing and humans are involved in this. Um, we've extended this idea. One of my students, Maddie Judge, a number of years ago, basically replicated this in the context of plant-based diets. There's a lot of suggestions, for example, that if we shift to a plant-based rather than an animal-based diet, then in fact we'll be helping the environment. Maddie finds exactly the same sort of thing in her research. If we frame, uh, we ask people, what sort of a New Zealand do you want to live in in 50 years' time? And then we ask them about the extent to which they think adopting a plant-based diet would harm those prospects. People actually generally think that it's a good thing. We've just covered a lot of content, so a recap is almost overdue. The core idea here is that beliefs don't happen by themselves. They're bundled with other beliefs tied into a package that, as a whole, appeals to your values. This, quite often, is political values. Because of this bundling, a critique of one belief can feel like a critique of the whole, and when that bundle of beliefs is tied to something that can be as tribal as politics, it can feel like an attack on the self. There is no clear answer as to how to combat this, but promising research both in Australia and locally suggests that getting people to think about their societal goals for the future may help. Mark Wilson didn't offer an explanation as to why, 
which makes sense if this is a relatively new area. If I were to offer my own guess, we heard just now that some opinions can be tightly bound to someone's, say, political identity. Focusing the question on the future may be encouraging people to think about an issue in a novel way that doesn't immediately bring up their established belief and the personal association they have with it. To put that in the Australia example, when people often talk about recycling, it's in the frame of saving the planet. If someone is foolish enough to not believe in climate change, talking about recycling would be a fast way to get them to go, nope, we do not need to recycle, the environment is just fine. On the other hand, using the future-focused framing allows this person to consider recycling on its own merits in terms of constructing a better future, rather than eliciting all the negative connotations it already has for them. Though, again, this is just my guess. But what is this package of beliefs that includes climate change denial? One thing we heard at the top of this episode was about the authoritarian personality. It sprung up to explain Nazi atrocities, then died down for a few decades as people found other explanations. It later also gained a resurgent, with its own reframing to make it work better. So the authoritarian personality fell out of use for a variety of reasons. It was theoretically and practically flawed, but it was resurrected from the dead in the early 1980s by a guy called uh, Robert Altemeyer, who narrowed it down, he theoretically refined it, and now it's really hard to find any kind of social or political psychological research which doesn't include a measure of the authoritarian personality. The idea that people... um, to a greater or lesser extent, think you should do as you're told. To a greater or lesser extent, you should be punished if you don't do as you're told. And to a greater or lesser extent, are very conventional in the way they view the world. So, a uh, very sort of, you know, women's place is in the home, children should be seen and not heard, so on and so forth. However, it was also discovered that authoritarianism isn't the entire picture for these sorts of beliefs and behaviour. There is a distinct but highly related concept with a more technical name known as social dominance orientation. In short, someone who is higher on this type of personality is a bigger fan of hierarchies and believes they are natural and just. Those at the top belong there, and so do the ones at the bottom. I think that's absolute hogswash, so you probably have a good idea of how socially dominant I am. Here in New Zealand, what we typically find is that people who vote Green or vote Labour tend to be more comfortable, they like egalitarianism. National and ACT Party supporters don't support inequality, they're just a little bit more ambivalent about the idea that we should all be equal. This turns out to be a really important concept in a lot of social and political psychology in terms of the kinds of attitudes that we hold. Authoritarians are not the same as social dominance, but they do tend to show the same sorts of attitudes. So people who score high on both of those tend to um, be opposed to Um, policies around the redistribution of wealth, but they're opposed to them for different reasons. So people who score high on social dominance orientation don't like the idea of high taxes because it ameliorates those hierarchies. People who are authoritarian feel less comfortable about increasing taxes because they worry that that's a violation of tradition or that it might involve people not doing as they're told. So there appear to be two possible routes to some of the same sorts of attitudes. And so, um, since they do largely look the same, but they mm-hmm. are taking two different routes, are there some key areas where mm-hmm. they differ? Where if you just were to look at someone's belief, you could say, ah, mm-hmm. 
they have that one so I can see they're leaning more this way. Yeah, so there are two answers to that question. The first one is where do they come from? So John Duckett, uh, now an emeritus professor at the University of Auckland, has suggested that they represent different roots to some of the same things and that their roots are in different forms of childhood socialisation. Social dominance, he would argue, comes about um, from a view of the world as a very competitive type of environment which reflects a kind of ruthless personality that has its roots in a very unaffectionate childhood socialisation. Authoritarianism, on the other hand, reflects a view of the world as a dangerous place, which has its roots in a kind of conforming, rigid personality that comes about from having a punitive childhood experience. So if you're punished, um, then you're more likely to see the world as a dangerous place. And you deal with that through authoritarian beliefs. Who's going to protect you from danger? Well, the authorities will. The other answer to the question is the things that they predict. And by and large, they do predict similar sorts of things. So people who score higher on social dominance orientation or who score higher on authoritarianism are more likely to have a preference for right-wing economic policy uh, and more conservative social policies, for example. But there are some very rare areas where they predict a divergence. So in, the, in, in terms of scientific theory and issues, it's the case that, for example, we've just finished doing some research on this, so it's very top of my head, that if you're social dominant or you're authoritarian, you tend to be more likely to be sceptical about climate change. Same thing holds for many scientific issues, but it doesn't hold for whether or not people think that evolution is the mechanism by which we came to be who we are. Authoritarians tend to be quite opposed to the idea of evolution, but social dominants tend to be a little bit supportive of it. Um, and I think that one of the reasons for that is that there are no implications for motivated social cognition if you're social dominant in evolution being the way that human beings came to be the way they are. In fact, there may be some good reasons for endorsing it. If you believe that the world is characterised by social hierarchies, then it may actually help you to believe that some people are more evolved to be more civilised, to be smarter, to be stronger, to be faster, and which usually means yourself, and therefore to support the idea. So those are two possible answers to that question. At the top of the episode, I mentioned Mark Wilson's research on meat eating and how it's associated with particular personality types. Those personality types are what we're talking about now. The more authoritarian you are, the more likely you are to vote national, and the more likely you are to eat more meat. The more social dominant you are, the more likely you are to vote national, the more likely you are to eat meat. At the same time, it's not a one-to-one relationship. So, for example, the ACT Party is particularly interesting because they tend to be um, very economically uh, conservative. They have a strong belief that free market economics is the way that the world should and does operate. At the same time, they're somewhat ambivalent about a lot of social stuff. So they're not necessarily directly tied to each other. In this context, I asked Wilson the question again of how we can reframe issues like eating less meat or saving the environment or recycling or whatever to these sorts of people who are so hostile to the notion. And he had a brilliant answer that demonstrates exactly the point of this module. There are trade-offs we may not have been able to imagine. If I have one concern about identifying things like authoritarianism and social dominance as the potential foundation for some of these multitude of attitudes, it's that they're theorised, and in fact we know they're relatively stable. So that means that it's unlikely that we can change people's beliefs about the climate or people's beliefs about what they eat by trying to make them less authoritarian 
or less social dominant because actually that's incredibly difficult to do. What I think we could try and do is to find ways of framing and messaging so that we appeal to the sorts of things that underlie, the sorts of things that are people's priorities. So if you're social dominant, then you tend to see the world as hierarchical. If we want to convince people that they should listen to scientists about climate change, then we might seek to suggest that scientists help uphold social hierarchies. If um, we want to appeal to authoritarians opposition to changing the things that they eat, then we want to show, we might want to convince them that they can move to a plant-based diet and still um, endorse hierarchy, um, to endorse authority that you should do as you're told, and that it, to some extent it's conventional. We can probably find ways of messaging. Um, these are relatively untested. We don't know how they will work yet. And one of the things that I, I worry a little bit about the other end is that by encouraging people to believe, for example, that scientists are actually helping uphold society's hierarchies, is that you might then turn off people who are low on social dominance, who think that the world should be egalitarian and characterised by equality. That is, sure, we may reframe an issue to capture those who are authoritarian or socially dominant, but these can easily have unintended consequences. I know that... I personally wouldn't be a big fan if I saw a mass media campaign going, we are the establishment, we are authority, listen to us and save the environment or you shall be a deviant. Not because that campaign may not be effective, I made it seem silly there, but it clearly could. Rather, it would sit poorly with me for the same reason I'm not authoritarian or socially dominant in the first place. An unquestioning attitude to authority or hierarchy hinders the grassroots change that I feel we need. And once you commit to a campaign with one message, you can't really also run the same issue under a radically different message. Well, you may now, given Facebook's hyper-targeting advertisements were seen by no one except those intended to. But on that simultaneously hopeful and sobering note, that's all we have for today. To offer a brief summary, you can influence a lot of people to do a thing by convincing them it's the thing everyone else does. In general, people can't be persuaded to do a thing when not doing it is tied into a highly invested set of beliefs. This is doubly so for people who value authority or hierarchies. In some cases, you may be able to get around this if you frame it in terms of something removed from the current context, like the future, or frame it in terms that is consistent with the rest of their beliefs. However, changing the framing runs the risk of alienating those who really dislike the new one. But for now, thank you for listening. I didn't cut much from what Mark Wilson was saying, because I hope you'll agree with me that he is an engaging listener. He is notably incredibly busy, so I offer thanks to him for lending me his time, and also thanks to the Centre for Science and Society for supporting my work, and again, all of you. The intro music is called The Drama, the outro, Dreams of Vain, both are by Raphael Crux, and I'll see you again soon. I think it's all interconnected. Yeah, I've got a long-standing interest in what people eat, and there are the, the main reason for this is just that I'm nosy, to be quite honest. I 